It's the Airhead 247 Podcast. The Airhead 247 Podcast, powered by Wedgetail Ignition Systems, state of the art ignition for your 247 Airhead. Proudly made in Australia by motorcyclists who love their BMWs. By the BMW Motorcycle Owners of America, who invite you to ride inspired. And Boxer2Valve.com, the premium supplier for all your airhead replacement parts. Now, let's get this thing fired up. Well, hello again, everyone. Good to be with you all. This week is part one of a two-part conversation with Mark Morrissey of M's BMW Boxer Works in Brisbane, Australia. You'll also know him as the driving force behind the Wedgetail ignition system. Now, I want to say a few words here and maybe a bit of a disclosure. Wedgetail is a sponsor of this program. You hear the announcement at the top of the show. We're proud to have them here as such, very much so. It's not our intention for this to be an infomercial for this product. However, it's understandable if some of you may feel that's the case. I will say I had planned on conducting this interview and doing this episode prior to our sponsor agreement. In any case, we do endorse the Wedgetail. I was an early adopter. I have four of these on all four of my bikes. And there are, of course, other options for electronic ignitions. And we encourage everyone to do their research when considering a purchase. Okay, that is out of the way. We'll also be joined by William Plam from Boxer 2 Valve. Our Tech Talk segment this week is Bing Carburetors. Want to take a moment to say hello to Arturo, who wrote us from Italy with a wonderful story of his 1979 R80-7. Arturo brought this abandoned motorcycle back to life after an extensive rebuild process, he let me know he plans on letting the bike wear its well-earned original patina, but wants to continue with the mechanical restoration process with smart upgrades and modifications. So Arturo, we wholeheartedly approve of this. Keep up the good work. Thanks to all our listeners in the great state of Wisconsin here in the United States, particularly those of you in Lena. Elkhorn and Pound, Wisconsin, you all were in our top 10 cities for listens in the month of February. So thanks for tuning in. I want to add, I had a great trip with my wife last year through parts of Wisconsin on the R90S, and we really enjoyed our stay at the Silvercrest Resort that was in Watoma or Watuma, Watoma, Wisconsin. Anyway, also, a gentle reminder to support the program with our free digital membership promotion with the BMW MOA. This runs through June. We're closing in on our goal of 200 new members. So if you've not taken advantage of this, please consider doing so. Information on how to join in the description section of this and all our episodes. Okay, enough of me going on. It's part one of our chat with Mark Morrissey. We'll dig into his history, passion, and philosophy on riding and maintaining the 247 in part two next week. Just a short preview. Since we're talking about it, we'll go headlong into the development of the Wedgetail Ignition System, but that's next time. So for now, a lot to take in over the next two episodes. Off we go. We're on the line with Mark Morrissey. 
Uh, Mark is in Brisbane, Australia. Uh, this isn't really too interesting to note, I guess, for a lot of folks, but we're about 16 hours apart. So as we're speaking, it's 5 p.m. here in Arkansas in the United States and uh, just turned 9 o'clock uh, a.m. there in Brisbane. So, Mark, first off, I'm really glad to visit with you. Most folks will know you as sort of the uh, creator of the Wedgetail Ignition System, which I want to get into and talk about a lot more uh, as we go through our chat today. But first, I just want to find out a little bit more about you. Uh, tell me how you got interested in motorcycles. First off, I guess, as a young man, what was your initial introduction to motorcycling? Well, we... Um... We lived in a little place, uh, and thank you for having me on, by the way, I mean to say, uh, called Redcliffe, uh, which is in the uh, north side of Brisbane. It's a bayside suburb surrounded, it's a peninsula surrounded by sea, and a pretty quiet little place it was. And up the road, there was an Englishman who used to build speedway engines for uh, slider bikes, and I was always up there hanging around making a nuisance to myself, one thing and another. Uh, they mainly um, JAP1000CC V-twins that he used to build. And um, he had a little matchless 350 that I was always fascinated by and trying to sit on and carry on with. I was about 14, I think. And um, one day he asked me if I wanted to learn to ride it, and that was where it all began. I uh, scooted all over the Redcliffe Peninsula with no helmet, no shoes and no licence on a matchless 350, which thankfully my parents didn't find out about until a long time later. <laughs> And and what year was that? Um, that would have been about 1967 or 8, somewhere there. All right. And so that's, that's a neat introduction. Uh, I think a lot of us uh, who were introduced uh, to motorcycles as youngsters had a maybe a family friend or somebody in the neighborhood or something, somebody who s saw a young kid interested in the bike and were happy uh, to bring him into that world and, and introduce him to it. Uh, what was the what was the guy's name? Did you end up staying in contact with him over the years? or how, uh, how? He, he, he was an old, old man then. His son uh, was about seven or eight years older than me, and he had a Honda Dream at the time, which was a very significant thing to us here in Australia. Like, it was a very, very different motorbike to anything that we'd seen um, and um, I guess, you know, um, his name was Stan Campbell, and, and he was quite well known as a, as a builder of high-performance speedway engines for motorbikes. Um, but a typical Pommy, you know, he was always in Pommy overalls with a cigarette sticking out of the corner of his mouth. And <laughs> he used to send these engines in a, in a shed in his backyard, and he used to really fine-tune them on the bench with, by, by observing and measuring and watching the flames coming out of the exhaust stubs at full revs. And uh, the noise was absolutely unbelievable. Uh, how the neighbours didn't burn his house down, I never know. But <laughs> he, he, was, uh, he was a fascinating guy. And uh, like, he didn't say a lot, but what he said sort of made a lot of sense to me. You know, and I, I rode a bike once. Once I rode that matchless, I fell off it more than I stayed on it initially. But it was just a bug that stayed with me for the rest of my life. It never really went away, you know. I, I just I loved the, the freedom of the motorbike and the, the feel of it, and the, the fact that you had to be in, you had to control it 
you had to work at getting control of the thing uh, rather than what me in a car, and I had I had driven cars by then, and I just was sitting in, in the car and operating it, you know. And how much... And that was really... How much, how much time passed until uh, you eventually purchased one for yourself? Uh, oh, well, I used to borrow a lot of them <laughs> from different people. The first bike I had, the first real bike I had that went on the road was a 19, I think it was a 1967 second-hand Suzuki Hustler 250, uh, which that time was a very unusual thing because it had a six-speed gearbox and for a little tiny bike, they went like hell, you know. Uh, they had the worst brakes of anything I've ever used in my life, and I crashed them considerably. But um, that was the first one, and then I had a series of BSAs and things over the years, you know. Just um, people would leave bikes with me when they went away on holidays or something. The various trail bikes and, and pommy bikes BSAs were, were the most common ones that I rode, Golden Flashes and Thunderbolts and things like that. Um and gradually, you know, I was buying and selling my own bikes, and I had all kinds of different, mainly smaller capacity bikes, because I just didn't have any money, you know, like, like most of us. Um, but they were mainly 250s and 350s. There was some matchless and OJ in there, a couple of bits and pieces. Um, Jap bikes weren't common then, um, or as common as they are now. 69, I think, the 754 came out on there in Australia. I wanted one of those badly, but I didn't have any money. Um, I eventually owned a few of those and then Yamahas. And I always stuck mainly between Hondas and Yamahas in trail bikes and, and road bikes. Now, uh, I owned a Vulcan VN15, which was arguably the worst thing that was ever put on wheels. Um, and then I got into Harleys. I had five or six of those. Um, and I met a little Chilean guy riding an R60 stroke five. He used to wear a Spitfire pilot goggles and a Brazilian scarf around his neck, and, and uh, he introduced me to BMWs. And the rest, as they say, is history. Yeah, I, I was just getting ready to ask you how were you introduced to a BMW, but you mentioned the story there. Before we move on uh, to airheads and BMWs in particular, I've interviewed uh, a few folks and spoke with a few folks uh, from Australia. And one thing that they sort of implied to me was the economic situation in Australia, the economy, the way things were set up, it was kind of a closed economy and it was difficult to get anything other maybe than British bikes or the occasional Japanese bike that may come in secondhand. And if you were able to get something else, the prices uh, were just uh, outrageous. Was Is that true? Was that how that uh, Australia was in the late 60s and early oh, part of the 70s? The 70s was changing very rapidly. Um, we, we were a British um, colony, of course, and, and so a lot of our cars were British, Austins and Morrises and things like that. And American cars out here were highly prized, you know, because they were durable and, and, and they, they copper hiding. And, um, you know, I, I had uh, I had a friend named Johnny Chippendall who, who loved motorcycles and cars. He had a, an Indian 1200 Chief and a 750 Scout. A couple of my friends had the early, you know, just post-war Harleys, um, and some of them were the, the little 750s and some of them were the bigger bikes. 
mostly we had British stuff, you know, and and uh, BSA. I, I never owned a Norton. I could never afford one. Uh, I had a couple of Tritons, uh, Triumphs, I should say, but mainly the early ones were BSAs and, and AJs or Matchless because they were the matches that particularly were you know 350s and they were fairly inexpensive to buy and they were fairly cheap to run. They were reasonably reliable. Um, we thought they were, I mean, um, <laughs> because we didn't know any different. Yeah, so, I was just going to say, compared to what, right? Yeah, compared to anything else on the road. In fact, in fact, the only one I ever had that would shed nuts and bolts faster than that was a Ducati um, silver shotgun at 450. <laughs> and it was a glorious bike to ride, but God almighty, it could throw butt bolts and nuts and washes <laughs> for miles at the <laughs> Um But, we, yeah, we were... we. we we did have a share of American stuff come in here, um, but the European stuff, what we saw a lot of where I live were, were from places like Czechoslovakia. They're funny little scooters that had rope starts on them and um, things like that. We, for some reason at Redcliffe, we seemed to wind up with a lot of people from around Hungary and, and those parts of the world there who had migrated to Australia, and they brought with them small economical carry-anything little scooter type across between scooters and motorbikes, you know. Hmm. Um, and um, a lot of those people also had things like Borgward cars and, and scooters, um, which, you know, it, they were an absolute curio out here at the time. And, and uh, I rode some of the scooters, and, and I, quite frankly, I was, I, I've always driven European cars when I do drive a car, which isn't very often, but um, I, I found the European cars, even old cars in those days, and, and the little scooters were easy to ride and they seemed to have a nicer ride and they had better brakes and better road holding. And then, you know, of course, the, the cheap Japanese stuff turned up and I wound up with uh, the longest I think I ever owned a bike was a first disc brake series um, Yamaha RD350, which I had and loved for many, many, many years. And it was a you know, brutally reliable bike. It really was. Yeah, mm-hmm. they're still popular today. So, <clears throat> you got to try and buy one now. You need to be the Shah of Persia. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're right about that. So, let's get back to talking about uh, airheads of, of that era uh, when you were introduced to them. You mentioned uh, you ran into uh, somebody on a Slash 5, and that was your introduction uh, to BMW. First of all, let me ask yeah. you go ahead. Yeah, so what, when you saw that bike uh, and started to get into them a little bit more, maybe ride them and, you know, however you ended up getting your hands on one, what what set those apart uh, in your mind from other bikes and, you know, how did you end up sort of settling on that? It was probably more subconsciously than anything, but, you know, how did you end up settling on that? Initially, nothing, because... They were around in the 70s when I had, like I had a K300 750 and a 900 Dharma, which was another thing. I still call it the 900 Drama. It, it was it was a, the most beautiful bike to look at. The bloody thing wouldn't stay going for longer than five minutes at a time. But um, BMWs used to perplex me back then because they were around. And, and, I mean, there was a version of them that was made in Russia called the Cossack that was sold out here. And I always was sort of mesmerised by these two cylinders sticking out the side of the engine. That was number one. And they 
And because they had a sharp drive, they, when they went down the road, it was really hard for me to imagine me looking tough as a young man on a thing that bobbed up and down every time we changed gears. And, <laughs> and, uh, and I, I kind of I looked into them, and when they brought out the 90Ss in, in about 73, uh, they were a striking-looking bike in their colour schemes and one thing and another, and they sounded glorious, and they, they, they seemed to go fast. Well, I went and priced one, and I was absolutely breathtaken by the, by the price of them because they would nearly double the price of a Ducati Dharma, not that that many would think, because a Dharma was a beautiful painting. It wasn't a great bike, I didn't think. Yeah. But the, 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 uh, I used to see them go past in, in, the, in the city when I was in there, and solicitors and that would be riding them. The thing I couldn't get my head around was a bike that cost all that money, and I was riding a K3 Honda 750 at the time, it had chrome badges on it and chrome this and chrome that. And this bike that cost nearly four times the amount of my Honda went past with a sticky tape thing on the side telling you it had 900 cc's. <laughs> and I thought, who pays all that money and doesn't get badges, you know? And, yeah. <laughs> and uh, so I kind of ignored them for a long time. And then I, in the late, or well, probably early 90s, I bumped into this guy. Uh, so I came to BMW's late. Um, and he was the mate, like all, all South American people, he was happy and cheerful and, and, and enthusiastic about everything, you know. And uh, he had ridden an R60 stroke 5 pretty much all over the world. And and he was an absolute character. He used to wear these high, high sort of D'Artagnan type sword fighting boots um, with a big leather fold down, like he looked like a pirate. And, and a beat up old bell stuff, but he always had his Chilean. Uh, not a yeah, Chilean scarf around his neck and a, a yellow AGV helmet and a spit by a pole. Oh, yeah. That's a great, I can, yeah, I, I, that's a great mental picture. I can, I can see this guy. Oh, he was, and he was, he always had a smile on his face. He's always laughing, always saying, you should buy yourself one of these bikes, you know, and I thought, not well, my backside points to the floor, but I just couldn't see myself on one. And um, anyway, one day, we went riding someplace, and I, I can't even remember what bike I had. I think it was a Japanese, probably a, a Yamaha, or, um, might have been one of those 1100 Yamahas, I think. Anyway, we went, and I could not believe how fast this man could go on this 600cc bike. I, it just astounded me, because behind Brisbane here, there's some of the most beautiful riding ranges in the world. They're within 20 minutes ride of where I'm sitting now. And they go for miles and miles up and down the coast in the Great Dividing Range. It's just a beautiful, amazing place to ride, even and better then because there wasn't the lunatics on the road that there are now. But I, I was flat out keeping up with him. I could catch him in a straight and I could outbreak him, but that was the end of it. We, I never got anywhere first. And and it, we used to take a cut lunch. We came ride buddies, you know, and we used to take a cut lunch and go someplace riding for a whole Sunday, leave in the dark and come home in the dark. One day he came and said to me, I found the bike that you must buy. And he argued and argued and argued. It was a, an R65 Monoshock, a 1985 model. Black, belonged to an ambulance driver who'd ridden it down from the Northern Territory and was stationed on a little island up to the north of us here. And I paid $2,000 for it and rode it home. And I, I'd never ridden a BMW before in my life with a car clutch that was out of adjustment and tappets that rattled like bloody dried peas in a cocoa tin. <laughs> the whole thing. I... I, I was riding at home from the island onto the onto the freeway, and I it was a six fifty, and I remember thinking, "What have I done?" Like it, it just seemed a complete 
it, from another universe. Yeah. To, to and not a good universe. Either. It was like <laughs> okay. And, and I, you know, I knew nothing about them. I could fix most of my jackpots and stuff. And and his, his endless enthusiasm sort of persuaded me to not sell it immediately when I got off it at home. And and uh, I worked on it and I got it running really nicely. And then I took my wife out for her first ever ride on the back of a motorbike and. She loved it, and we, we used to call that little bike the Bora in the end because it, it just took us everywhere. We went everywhere on that bike, up hills, down dales, country roads, followed trail bikes up on the riding tracks and everything, all with a set of um, um, crowds of panniers stashed on the back of it. And I, I gradually fell in love with it to the point that once I sort of understood the idiosyncrasies of the bike, they weren't idiosyncrasies anymore. And once I began to investigate the way they were made and designed and built, I just fell in love with the engineering you know? And uh, I, I, I rode with one until he was unfortunately killed in an accident a number of years ago. He was a diabetic and he, wouldn't do, he just would not do what he was told. He, he wouldn't do what he was told on the road. He wouldn't do what he was told in the shop. He, wouldn't, he just wouldn't. And uh, he, he wouldn't follow his diet properly, had a seizure and he lost control of his bike and was killed. Oh, boy. And, uh, by that time, <clears throat> we had a group going here in Brisbane, which wasn't a club, we just called ourselves the Brisbane Airheads. And we we uh, we we used to communicate via email and we'd go on rides, we'd be anything up to about, there's about 150 bikes in it. There was no official club. See, I was in the BMW club, but there was no official club for Airheads and all the Oil heads and things were starting to appear at the time, and the K bikes and all the rest. I had two of those, which I despised. I never did like them. I just couldn't get used to them after the hours. And and um, I, 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 there was a group of a bunch of us that used to ride all the time, go away to rallies and stuff like that. And, and uh, eventually, one came and appeared. This is before he was killed, obviously. Otherwise, I'd be talking about a ghost story. But he uh, he came down and grabbed me one day. So he must come and buy this bike. He must come and buy this bike. That was about 23 years ago, and it was a, an R75-6, a Monza blue one, which I still had sitting here faithfully beside me. Mm-hmm. And I've done about 11,000 kilometres on since March. Um, and we've ridden that, my wife and I have ridden that for 20 years everywhere. I've got eight of them now, uh, two GSs, an RS. Uh, I've got a GS trike, um, a slash five, a slash six, and there's another one in there somewhere, but I can't remember what it is. But, oh. um, and and I, over time, I, I, I met a guy named Michael Schnering, who worked for the most famous BMW mechanic in Australia for many years. He's a German-trained guy. We became instant friends. He realised how much I loved the bike and decided to teach me how to fix them. And uh, the rest, they say, is, uh, is history. Yeah. Since this program launched in March of 2022, we've heard from a number of you telling us how much you enjoy it. So first off, thanks for tuning in and thanks for supporting us. To help continue our efforts here, we've partnered with the BMW Motorcycle Owners of America, who coincidentally are also fans and supporters of this program. The MOA is conducting a membership drive over the next several months. Their goal to add 200 new members And to help them do that, we're offering a free one-year digital membership 
for Airhead 247 listeners. The membership includes discounts at hotels, their monthly magazine, great deals on roadside assistance programs, and a fantastic network of BMW owners that share your passion. To sign up, visit 247.bmwmoa.org. Complete the online form and use the activation code AIRHEAD247. Or go to the description section in this podcast. We've popped a direct link right there. We want to say thank you to the BMW Motorcycle Owners of America and thank you to you for supporting our efforts here with the podcast, where we'll continue to bring you unique history and insight into the world of the 247 Airhead. That website, once again, for your free membership, 247.bmwmoa.org. Use the activation code AIRHEAD247. Now back to more of our conversation with Mark Morrissey. All right, so you you went over a number of different things there. I'll, I want to backtrack and uh, ask you about a few of them. <clears throat> the first one that stuck out was okay, a GS trike. So that's uh, so you're talking like a, what eighty mid eighties uh, paralever GS that's been turned into a three wheeler. I bought it like this. Uh, some people, because if you, you, I'm sorry for the dogs barking. Oh, that's dogs, okay. Don't worry about yeah. it. Yeah. Um, and they some days they say nothing, and some days they never shut up. <laughs> but um, the, the trike was already made into a trike. It's built on a '91 uh, R100 GSPD. Okay. Uh, and the fellow that owned it from New had um, he became. Uh, not a paraplegic, but he didn't have the full use of his lower body uh, through some disorder that he had. And he took the independent rear suspension out of a car that we have out here that you probably have never heard of in America, but it's based loosely on a, a German Opel. Uh, it was a Holby Calais, they called it, and it had a, a, the first of the independent rear suspensions, which is quite a small rear suspension. And it fit it into a cradle, and, and the engineering that this guy did to have this thing made into a trike is amazing. Yeah. But when you sit on it, you sit on the original BMW Parastaka seat behind the tank and everything else, and there's a double wishbone rear end under you with cycle guards that go up and down with it. And I almost finished building a little pickup ute back for a little pickup truck. Not very big, just big enough to fit maybe two wheels in the back of it, but... Perfect if my wife and I want to go away for a weekend camping. It'll take all our lightweight gear without having to drag panniers and trailers and all that nonsense around. You know? yeah. so, I don't ride it much at the moment because I've still got one with two wheels that's done 500,000 kilometres that I ride every day and I can't bear to get off it anyway, so I really like that bike. Wow. Did you say 500,000? Yes. Wow. Okay. I'm making a note of that. I want to, I want to ask you about that too. Uh, you also mentioned... Um, before I forget, you mentioned the, I guess it was the Monza Blue Slash 6. That was your second bike, uh, or second BMW, yes, I should yes. say. Now, do you, you do you still have that? Yes, it's sitting next to me here. It, it is the last bike I'll ever own. Uh, it is, it is, we call it the Hummingbird. Um, it, it is the most beautiful bike to ride, um, and still is after all these years. I, every time I get on it, I'm just amazed at how good it actually really is as a bike. People complain about the brakes, but they were of the day. You know, they were good brakes in their time if they were set properly, and they still are if they're set properly. But they're like modern cars. But 
modern cars have got power everything. They don't. They didn't have power brakes and power steering when I was a kid. It was Armstrong steering, we used to call it. <laughs> right. You had to have strong arms to steer it. <laughs> yeah, right. To steer it. And the brakes needed a good hefty shove to get the car to stop. Well, the, the six is like that, but it's made like a clock. It, it, they, they are the last of, those in the sevens are the last of the real, true, old-school BMWs. They were hand-assembled and, and built, and, and everything on them was made to be fixed, you know? And, a good point, yeah. And I love, I love working on them, and I love riding that bike. I've never grown tired of it in all the years that we've had it and all the places we've been. It's, it just gets into a zone and hums away all day at about 110 k's an hour, and you can ride it all day. It's just a lovely, lovely bike. And, and, and they're all like that, that, that slash fix. It's no wonder the 90S is revered and the 100S isn't, you know. Like, it should be because it's a better bike. You know, you bring up a good you bring up a you bring up a good point there, Mark. I mean, I've owned a number of different eras. I've had a, a few Paralever uh, GSs, uh, one of the later R100R Mystics. Uh, and, I had a Mystic. Yeah, and some other bikes, and and they're they're great motorcycles, uh, obviously, yeah. uh, and I really enjoy them. But I found I I keep going back to that experience that you're describing uh, with the slash. Six slash seven, even a slash five, I guess, to yeah. a certain degree. The twin classic twin shock, uh, twin exhaust. Yep. You, you know, you've got the balanced look and uh, design of that motorcycle, and it is of an era and a time. Uh, and I've mentioned this to uh, some other folks, and, and this is just my own uh, sort of feeling about this. But the way those yeah. those bikes were put together, where the way the parts were sourced. Uh, how the rubber components, plastic components, the the clocks and the gauges, those were all sourced for that particular motorcycle. Nowadays, and even going into the 90s, uh, uh, not so far back, uh, m- manufacturers now share similar parts and uh, distributors and manufacturers for a number of different components and motorcycles. Not all of them, but... There was something unique uh, and about how those BMWs were, were built back then, and um, and you that, hit you hit it right on the head. That that's the truth. A lot of the components, you know, obviously have similarities to things like BWs and stuff yeah. like that, and and that's okay. But it's it's the way it, it's it's the integrity of the machine that I you know I, I mean I, I'm on a lot of American forums. Um, trying to sample what people think and feel about things, and I try to help people sometimes with some advice, which when you give advice with Australian accent, sometimes it's taken, and sometimes they think that you've escaped from some asylum sometimes. <laughs> but but um, it's, it's, it's astounding to me that there are so many slash sixes that people still have with thirty and 40,000 miles on them, you know, over there. And I... I couldn't imagine that. My, my blue bike's done 300 and something thousand Ks. My GS is just about to have done 500 thousand Ks. My RS has done 260 odd thousand Ks. I mean, I can't stay off them. <laughs> I, just, <laughs> I, just, I just love the sound of them. I love the feel of them. I love the fact that they look so ungainly, but they cover the ground so well. You know, they just, they just, 
eat up miles, and the, the low centre of gravity means that you've got to be a complete idiot to get yourself into trouble with one. Like, <laughs> it, you know, it, they, they just naturally try to save you if you let them. Yeah, yeah. And 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 uh, that's where my love affair with them came. I came to BMW relatively late in my cycle life, but once I started to delve into them and see the integrity of, of the way they were made, and particularly, as I say, the sixes, the fives were a bit experimental. They had a few funny little things that used to drive me nuts. But, but And the later ones, you can see that they're still hand-assembled to a certain extent, and the technology has been refined so that they'll go together with better tolerances and more reliably, mm-hmm. easily. Yeah. And, and they certainly, like the R100 GSPD that I ride every day, it has a certain magic about it. We call him Kenny, Kenny the Kenworth. And uh, he, he, um, you know, he just covers a thousand kilometres like it isn't there. And it's a bit, I, I love riding, I really do. But this, every time I get on that six, you can almost feel the passion that it was built with in the first place. Well, I can, and I'm probably just an idiot. But it, to me, it's like you can tell that these are put together a different way. Um, and and I enjoy and love working on them for that reason. You know, that it, there's nothing that you, anything that you do to a BMW, if you do it properly, you get an instant improvement in the response you get back. Well, that doesn't happen with many mechanical things. I've got to say. Yeah, well, wow, that's yeah. a great point. You know, one one last thing I'll say about that, especially with the. <clears throat> slash six uh, series. Uh, I, I have an R90S from uh, 1975, uh, the orange one. And one of the neat things about that is one of the first things I noticed, uh, at least when I was shopping for them, and I was tip. This was maybe I looked. I bought one about three years ago, but I had been looking to purchase one for a, about two years in front of that, and really was just looking for the right bike. You know, I wanted to find one that was. Uh, original condition, original paint, uh, one that had some miles on it, wasn't a garage queen, and one that I could ride uh, but not feel bad about, you know, crossing a a creek or a mud puddle where I live, you know, something like that. So anyway, uh, I I ended up finding one, and one of the just uh, most endearing aspects of that to me that I really had fun looking for was the signatures from the pinstripers that were on the bodywork. Yeah. One's got a one good baby. The guy that built it and the guy that the girl that that's lined it. Yeah. Yeah. The only thing that's ever been painted on my blue bike is the tank and that was done about a month after it was bought new. Um the rest of the bike's completely original and it's all fading everywhere now, being monster blue. And one part of me, the, the O C D part of me wants to paint it and pin line it and concourse it and turn it in the other part and it gives me a slap and says, leave it alone. It got that way gracefully, you know. That's right. That's right. Yeah, There's and there's always a great debate about, uh, you know, patina versus uh, restoration or something. But, well, those are just some great some great comments. I can really hear your, your passion uh, for the motorcycles, the way you talk about it there. All right. So, yeah. good. I'm glad we got to go back and, and visit some of those things you mentioned. One of the last things you mentioned uh, before we reviewed those, some of those topics was you were introduced uh, to somebody uh, who set your path forward as uh, a mechanic. Uh, so, so tell me that story uh, because that eventually uh, was going to lead to the shop that you opened and then uh, the designing of the wedge tail ignition system. So, tell me about that. 
you know, I've always been was always a strange kid when when my when my um, mates were driving potted up Holdens and things like that around the place, which was what this is Australia, the equivalent to you having a Mustang or a Chevy, you know, in the 60s or 70s. And uh, I was always different. I had Austin Healy's and, and, and Fiat's and things like that. And, and I was always amazed that a 1500cc Fiat could keep up with a 192 cubic inch Holden anywhere because it had better brakes and better suspension. And and that that kind of thing is how I've lived my life. I can't fix something if I don't understand how it works. I can't. I can fix anything if you show me what what it does and why it does it. Like fixing a Bing carby, they're not just the carby that you put aliens in. If you look at the way they're constructed, they're an absolute masterpiece of design and perfectly designed to fit and work properly on a vibrating twin cylinder engine. They're, they're the perfect carburetor for people who don't want to be fiddling with the bloody things all day. Like go and buy an ammo and see how you go. And and at the end of the day. That's what got me into the BMWs, and I was learning out of manuals. I used to write to Oak Oakelson back in the day via email. Oh, yeah, 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 the, the Airheads uh, contributor, yeah. Yeah, and and Robert Fleischer, the snow bum, and, and I was, you know, and I, to them I was probably a nuisance, uh, but, I mean, I was a grown man with five kids, you know. I wasn't really a nuisance, but what I wanted to know. I've got a passion for learning, and I've had it all my life. I can't. I drive steam traction engines and trains, and all, anything that turns around with an engine or something that makes it move, I'm interested in. And and um, a friend of mine who was in the Brisbane Airheads group that I mentioned said to me that he'd grown up in Sydney and he had met a man down there, a German fellow, who looks he bears a striking resemblance to Gandalf the Grey, actually. Okay, uh, he's a, a German. German trained VW mechanic, and he was working for a guy named Donnie Wilson in Sydney. And Don Don was the acknowledged BMW guru of the world here in Australia. He built race bikes and prepared for the Castrol six hours. I never had the privilege of meeting him, unfortunately. He had died by the time I met Michael. And about 20 something years ago, we met Michael on a ride. In, in a country town in New South Wales, he was there. He was injured badly in an accident. He's standing on the side of the road and the bloke lost control of his motorbike and flattened him. And he can't bend his right leg. So he uh, he rides a an R80 GS with a sidecar on it and his foot in a stirrup. And, uh, but he still has a 100 CS that he rides with no sidecar and his foot in a stirrup. And I'm blowed if I know how he gets off it. But anyway, we won't, we won't go there. But, but we became... Instant friends in the space of five minutes when I met him. Um, we just clicked somehow. I don't know how, but I've never heard him raise his voice. I've never heard him curse or swear. He's about six foot three or four, and he's got this flowing grey beard. And he's a true, honest gentleman in every sense of the word, and probably the most knowledgeable man about BMW that I've ever known or heard of or spoken to anywhere. And yet. He doesn't brag about it or make a noise about it. Um, and over the years, we became best best friends. Like, he, he made me special tools or gave me his spare ones. Um, we would go down there. I'd, he's about three hours' drive from me, and I would go down and spend a couple of days with him down in his workshop dis, dismantling things, and he would be explaining to me why these thrush washers are different in different places and showing me, I guess, what you'd call the secrets, you know, um, showing me how to set up inflating cranks. And, and one thing I wouldn't touch for years was the gearbox. I, I, I just 
I built a lot of gearboxes, but the thought of these massive car-sized gears spinning around in a very fragile aluminium box and getting something wrong and the amount of money that a shaft can cost you just used to put me off them. So when I needed a gearbox built, I would take it down to Michael. And he just said to me one day, you know, you're stupid. You can fix these things in, in your head. He said, they're not complicated. Like, the same gearbox that you've got in tractors and stuff. And I said, I know, but I just, I don't know. It's just, they look fragile to me, you know. Anyway, we persevered. He kept trying to teach me and teach me. He did, and he said, one day I'm going to bring you, I'm going to take every gear in the gearbox apart and I'm going to put it in a crate, including the intermediate shaft. Oh. And you want to put it back together without the um, without the mill or any manual, and then when you get it right, you can class yourself as a guru. Wow. Okay. So this was the 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 transmission challenge. Yeah, <laughs> and it was a fourteen-hour challenge. I was blind drunk by the time I finished it, but I did get it right eventually. I I had a lot of fun because there the, the little radius thrust washers, and there's a couple of different sizes, and I mixed them up, and I had one of the cogs on back. But anyway, I got it there. And and uh, I used to ask him questions about modifications that I thought I could see that you could make to them, you know. And he would just very quietly say to me, when you can fill that, empty that crate and produce a full-functioning gearbox, you start experimenting with them because you will know how to do it. Yeah. And that was, that was the way he taught me, you know. And uh, we're still best friends today. We still, we still talk regularly and... When the world gets too much for me, I hop on my bike and I go down. And he, he lives on 13 acres uh, down near a place called Nimbin, which he was famous for being like um, hippie central. Uh, he lives about six miles from there in this most beautiful piece of country that we've ever been. And and uh, we just sit there and talk and we tinker with motorbikes and discuss things. We're currently tinkering with a 1938 R66. Wow. Um, and... and uh, he, he is a true dear, dear friend of mine and a mentor of, of unbelievable quality. You know, like, you know, it's not that I'm so good at it. I think it's more to do with the fact that I paid attention and I was taught properly. You know? Yeah, yeah. And Boy. I must say, it doesn't mean taught properly as opposed to somebody. some of the guys that I know that you've interviewed um, are, are true gurus over there in the States. And, and they, they did their time in places like Butler and Smith and, and places like that. That's right. And they they had all the service bulletins and and the and the BMW culture. Um, what I had was a passion to learn about them, and a guy that looked like Gandalf the Grey who was the best. <laughs> oh wow! Uh, what a Mark! What a gift uh, for for you uh, yeah. to have to have met him, yeah. huh? Yeah. Oh yeah. And I I got sick back in twenty twenty, very sick, and Michael's way of Helping me, he'd ring me to see how I was, and I, I was really quite sick. I'd contracted sepsis, and, and that nearly killed me. And Michael came up here. I had a back because I was building two or three or four gearboxes a day, and probably five or six sets of carburetors. And his way to help me was to just kiss his wife goodbye for a few days, and he came and stayed with us, and he stood here and built gearboxes for me and carburetors and did things like that. And when they were all up to date, he went home. <laughs> wow! Just fabulous day. Wow! What a guy. Wow, that's a great story. So I want to ask you then how that, uh, I mean, I, I know how it did, but I'm, I'm curious then, <clears throat> your relationship with him blossomed. Uh, you mentioned you were uh, corresponding with 
mechanics and uh, BMW aficionados here in the States, like Oak and, and Snowbomb and stuff like that. How did that process eventually grow into the shop you have now, uh, which is, I guess, M M M Michael or Mark Morrissey Motor Works or something? I'm guessing that's what it what it stands for. But my name is Mark Morrissey, and I've been on motorbikes all my life. And if you know, well, probably not in the states. I'm not sure, but in Australia, you automatically get a nickname. Sure. And so, you know, it can be Snake or whatever you want to be, but we don't hear too much about it here. But I was always called Ems. Oh, okay, Ems got it. Because, my, because of my, my two initials, NM. Yep. And to this day, all those guys from the old area group, when they, when they greet me, they always call me Ems. Nobody ever calls me Mark. Ems, I like and, that. Yeah, I like that. So my yeah. initials my initials are DD, so everybody knows me as Double D or, uh, or Dubs yeah. or, you know, something like that. So, okay, fair yeah. enough. One of the reasons so many airheads are still on the road today is because of great parts suppliers and enthusiasts like Boxer 2 Valve. William and Edward Plam at Boxer 2 Valve have years of experience with the 247 airhead, dating back to their first repair shop and dealership in the early 1980s. Boxer 2 Valve stocks and sources only premium parts and tools, so no need to worry if you're getting a cheap pattern or shortcut part. They simply don't carry them. Boxer 2 Valve has extensively researched which parts are correct for your motorcycle. Just enter your year and model and you'll see only the parts that fit your bike. That takes the guesswork out of the ordering process. Real-time stock information that is also available, so no need to guess what may be on back order that could delay your project. Also, if you're digging into a repair for the first time, be sure to check out Boxer 2 Valve's video repair series. These cover both Twin Shock and Post 81 models and are great tutorials that go step-by-step -step through a variety of repairs and parts replacement procedures. The video series is a great workshop companion, one I've used many times over the years. So for all your airhead parts needs, Boxer2Valve.com. That's the number two. Boxer2Valve.com. Time for another edition of Tech Talk with William Plam from Boxer2Valve. This week, it's all about the Bings. All right, we're pleased to be joined once again by William Plam from Boxer2Valve. And William, since we last spoke, you were down at Bike Week in Daytona. And I think I know why you were there. It wasn't for the... $1.50 Bud Lights and wet t-shirt contest. What was going on down there? Yeah, it was actually quite a lot of work. We, we, we've gotten involved with a new company. It doesn't pertain to airheads at all. It's uh, basically a, um, an exhaust system or exhaust company called Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And this is um, uh, a, an exhaust system that allows you to change the sound sort of on the fly. It has a, uh, like a butterfly valve in, in the muffler, and so when you first start the motorcycle, it is uh, quiet, sounds like a stock bike, and then when you, you know, get, get out of your neighborhood or wh whatever place you want to kind of be flying under the radar, um, then you can press a button on the handlebar and the valve opens up and it makes uh, appropriate noise for the motor. Uh, these are for BMW, for the R18, for the... Um, R9T, 
the 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 uh, the twelve hundred and twelve fifty GS. We got the eight fifty GS coming soon, as well as the uh, RT and RS models, and then also for Harley, most every Harley, uh, uh, most Indians, and Triumph. So it's a new product line for us, and uh, something that we're happy to be bringing to the U.S. The company's been around for about. 25 plus years in the Netherlands, one of the biggest uh, exhaust companies in Europe, and uh, we're just bringing that into the U.S. market. So we were down there uh, showing that and getting that off the ground, and it was it was a lot of work, but it was a lot of fun, but a lot of great people, and that's what we were down there doing. It wasn't we weren't uh, we weren't partying really at all. <laughs> Hardly. Yeah. <laughs> I, I didn't think you were. I didn't think you were. And yeah. we should also say, you know, a lot of folks who listen to the program uh, have owned or currently own other brands, other BMWs, uh, maybe a Cruiser. I've had a couple Sportsters from time to time, so I can appreciate uh, a modified exhaust. And so folks want to learn out, learn more about that. Uh, where is that at the Wonderleash site or do you have a new uh, website for that or how, how are folks finding out about it? So we have a new. We, we do have the, the BMW uh, products on WonderlishAmerica.com, the the GS, the RIT, etc. But we also have a different website, and it's called JekyllAndHyde.us. And Jekyll is not spelled with a Y, but with an I. So J E K I L L and Hyde H I D Y E um, dot US. And we've got a configurator there, so you go there, you basically choose your model, make, and then you can decide chrome, black, long, short, which kind of end caps. And the, and the uh, a lot of them we have in stock, and others are made custom in the factory in the Netherlands and then airshipped UPS within five to seven days. Typically, we can deliver. Excellent. Excellent. Good to know. So... Again, those of you out there who have some other bikes, some later model BMWs might be something to check out and wanted to give you an opportunity as one of our sponsors here, William, to, to say a few words about that. So well done. Let's Thank move you. on. Yes, indeed. Let's move yep. on uh, to why we're here. And that, of course, is to talk about airheads. Our particular topic this week, I want to talk about carburetors and maybe we'll focus our conversation today just on Bing's. Uh, I know, of course, the 90S had Delordos, and a lot of folks will do a, a Makuni uh, conversion. But for our topic today, I wanted to, to discuss uh, the different kinds of stock carburetors we most commonly see on the Airhead range. So let's start out with, I guess, what I call the slide type, uh, which were on the R50, the R60-5, and the R60-6. I guess my question to start out here is, why do you think these were used as opposed to just a standard 32-millimeter uh, 32 CV with a diaphragm? Was it a cost-cutting move for those uh, lower-end uh, models? It, it, it might have been a cost-cutting move, but it also was more of a, 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 a progress in technology. I think the CV carb was, was a newer thing, and... Also, the, mechanically, the, um, the 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 CD carb is a bit more complex in its in its makeup, and there's maybe not even enough really first so much physical space to to pull it off with a smaller diameter. It's kind of my thought on that. And also, 
it was adequate for for the the power output that was required of the bike. Yeah, I indeed I had a sixty slash six with the with those stock carburetors for a while, and my experience on it was you really really had to sort of preload the throttle and the clutch to to make a pass on somebody or if you needed to pull out quickly into traffic. Uh, acceleration wasn't great on those, obviously, uh, but right. it, was, it was still a, a pretty, uh, a, a pretty, how should I say, static, dependable format uh, for a carburetor on that motorcycle. Um, again, when when looking at those, it, as you say, it was kind of an older design. I guess it was still a. a a, a runover from the slash two series so they were still that was the right. same kind of carburetor there and finally i guess once the slash sevens came around uh those slide types you don't see they quit using them ostensibly uh for folks who still have those uh, are there any different i'm just curious and and your experience with them too are there any different sort of tuning uh, tips or tricks or things you need to keep in mind with those as opposed to a standard CV? Well, there is the, there is a, a they call the accelerator pump. It's not the standard sort of accelerator pump like you see on a lot of other other types of carburetors, but it it's basically an additional fuel inlet. It's a, it's a spring and a, a, a little diaphragm, a plastic. Uh, a plastic diaphragm, I guess you could call it, or wet, a little wafer sort of thing behind a spring. And when you roll the throttle on, it, it gives an additional circuit of fuel uh, beyond the main jet. So you have to just check to make sure that that's all working right to get the optimal performance out of the carburetor. Now, um, other than that, they're, they're about as simple as an anvil, really, uh, in a way. As long as all the passages are clean. There's there's not really much to it. Uh, in fact, the gasket kit just consists of of uh, O-rings and 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 fi- a couple fiber gaskets. There's not not a whole lot to it. Just the standard stuff. Of keeping it clean is the most important thing, I'd say. Did uh, did the slides tend to wear on those and, and need replacement over time, or was that a pretty uh, a, a pretty solid format there? You know, generally the the slides on the things I. I you know, on really high mileage bikes, perhaps they could warrant replacement. But it's never been, it's never come to my attention that they that they wear out really um, much at all. As as Just opposed, I, I yeah, haven't been to the point of where they're unserviceable. Yeah, as opposed to now, I haven't experienced this myself, but I've heard with a Delorto on a ninety S, or if you've got another model with a Delorto, those slides can wear out and and do. Uh, need replacement from time to time. Yeah, it probably has to do with the metallurgy mm-hmm. uh, used, and uh, and so I think that uh, was my experience has been that the slides are usually serviceable. But yeah, uh, on the bings. And then the last yeah. thing on these on these slide types did correct me if I'm wrong here, and maybe I'm just having a, a fragment of a memory that's true or not, but. Did some of those early slide types, even on the 247, it might have been this way on the Slash 2. Honestly, I can't remember. It's been so long since I had one. But some of those actually had the ticklers on the carbs to, to flood the carbs for a choke. Uh, and then the yeah. later models, when they got into the 247 run, they did actually add 
a choke cable or choke circuit. Am I misremembering there? Yeah, I think I think the very early um, R sixty slash five, R fifty slash five, like maybe seventy one, mm-hmm. seventy seventy one, still had the tickler. And you'll see on the air filter housing on those older bikes that there was a little white plastic plug that went in the hole where the where the um, uh, choke lever would go. That's how the bike was delivered. Instead of a choke lever, it, it had a little plug there where that screw would go in, and there was just nothing there but those two little ribs on the on the um, air filter housing, and then it had a tickler. And so all the tickler does is you basically are mechanically pushing the float down to allow the carburetor basically to overflood or flood overflow in a sense and drip some fuel down into the intake to facilitate starting and it's kind of like by today's standards an environmental nightmare to think about you know <laughs> if, you, if you if you're a little heavy-handed on that thing it's going to overflow and actually drip fuel onto the ground you know but yeah i think that was actually as i recall that was that was the way it was done the first couple of years, and then they went to um, a, a, a choke lever. They modified the carburetor and got rid of the tickler. Yeah, yeah, and the, on the side of the airbox, as we're all familiar with. So, right. okay, so moving on then, the the ones that are most ubiquitous for all of us, uh, for the most part, are the Bing 32 and the 40 millimeter for those uh, who have... Uh, a, a mid seventies RS uh, or S or something like that, uh, or Euro spec bikes also had the forty millimeter carburetors. The Bing thirty two and forty CV, uh, generally speaking, is again a really stable format. Uh, it does take, as you mentioned, a little bit more in the rebuild process uh, if you're going through and refreshing that over time. Uh, my first question here is on the. Th- the 32 versus the 40. So the sizes on these, how, how would you say they perform differently from one another? So a 32 versus a 40, what is any benefit to having the larger or smaller one? Is there, for instance, you get better throttle response in a, in a certain range uh, with the 32, or is the 40 you're pumping able to move more air and gas? What, what's the different? What's the thinking there with those larger sizes? That's uh, pretty much what, what it is. An example, for example, it would be the uh, let's take the um, R100GS. That was that the U.S. models all had the 32 millimeter carburetors on there, and uh, and the European models that you. Most of them had 40-millimeter carburetors, but the, there was also the 32, I, I believe, was available. And they had different power outputs. Mm-hmm. Now, the, the, um, the, the larger carburetor will, will give you, you know, more throughput at higher speeds, more, more air in, more air out, that whole concept. But the 32 really uh, packs a little bit more punch at, at lower RPM gives you a little bit more more torque because they, they, uh, the 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 airflow is more instantaneous because of the smaller diameter of, of, on the thirty two. So you, you, I think that you can feel when you're riding both bikes with the same same displacement a, a little bit more off the bottom end might be a little advantageous on on an off road scenario where you need to have that a little more punch, you know, um, on on demand. 
whereas uh, the 40 is going to have a lot higher uh, speed potential. And I th- that's that's been my take on it. Yeah, I had the opportunity just this past weekend. Uh, I was riding with a friend. He's got a 78 R100-7. Uh, uh, with stock 32s, and I had my 77 R100S with the stock 40s, and we swapped we swapped bikes for about 20 minutes, um, which which you know it's always good to do. You ride somebody else's, kind of see how they got it set up, get a little feedback and comment uh, from one another. It's fun to do. Anyway, I did notice uh, right out of the gate when I got on his with the 32s, it is punchier off the line. Uh, there's no two yep. ways about it. Uh, it. A little bit quicker on the acceleration. However, uh, you're 100% right. Once you get up uh, above 4,000 and, uh, you know, you're exceeding uh, speed limits, so to, so to speak, mm-hmm. uh, the 40s, right. that's where the 40s come in uh, big time. And exactly. I, I think I noticed my fuel mileage was maybe four or five miles a gallon less than his, especially if I right. was riding spirited. He was maybe getting uh, close to 40-some miles to the gallon where I was, uh, you know, mid to upper uh, 30s on the MPG. So it does seem to use a little bit more fuel as well. Yeah, there's no doubt. Typically, the, the all the 40 millimeters use, are using larger jets, uh, larger main jet. Like a 32 typically will run up to 135 main jet on a lot of applications. And mm-hmm. you might be a one, 150 or one. 55 or even a 160 on that 40. So you're just letting a lot more fuel pass that needle. So that makes sense that your mileage would, would be impacted. Indeed. So a couple things to talk about. Uh, we could go a, a lot in depth on, on carb rebuilds. I mean, there's a lot of things to talk about there. But one thing in particular, I'm always sort of in, in, a, in a state of indecision about if I'm getting a bike that's new to me, uh, and am going and going to go through the carbs and replace the O-rings, maybe floats and uh, things like that, just an overall service, uh, is replacing the butterfly uh, O-rings on the, on the shaft. And that procedure is a, l- a little bit more involved than just basically going through the carburetor and replacing parts ostensibly. I mean, there's a little bit of extra work you have to do uh, on that butterfly O-ring. T- tell me about that. Yeah, there, it, it actually really does complicate matters. You, you've got, first of all, a, the potential of damaging parts when you do that. Yep. When you get those screws out, you know, if you're lucky, if you get enough, you know, if, if the, the, originally the screws on there on a lot of them were, were peened on the end so that they wouldn't come out. So you have to get in there and, and grind that, that kind of mushroom off of there so you can get the screw out or they're Loctite or both. And in any event, when you take those screws out, you do run the risk of, of wrecking the threads on the shaft. So you got to be prepared for that. So you don't want to take that job on unless you've got spare parts on, you know, readily available and, and expect that you're going to get the job done that day because you, you, you got a high likelihood of needing to replace those shafts just by taking the screws out. But if, if you, are lucky and get the screws out okay, then it's not really that big of a deal. And uh, it's just you have to do I, I do one at a time and pay very close attention to how the butterfly comes out, how it goes back in, and make sure that it seals all the way around. 
Um, we kind of show that in one of our videos how the you know these are probably set on some sort of test bench at the factory, but you know nobody has anything like that. So you you kind of look for any any light to close the close everything or close the butterfly in, inside the, the carburetor so that the the edges of the um, butterfly are 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 not at 90 degrees. They're at an angle. So that when they are in in there, they're like at maybe 10 degrees or something like that when they're closed, so that it makes a tight seal. And so you have to make sure that everything's centered right. So and you can do that just by shining a light and looking for any light coming through, and you can kind of manipulate it so that it's completely sealed before you put the screws in. And then of course while you're doing that, you got to be careful not to dislodge it. So you know double check your work and all that. But it's not really that big of a deal. The only thing you're, you're really accomplishing by even taking that job on is changing those little O-rings. And you could, if they're, well, they typically are, you know, brittle, and there, there's a potential of letting a little bit of unmetered air pass that O-ring. I think it's probably really insignificant. Like, if, it, if that O-ring did leak, it's not going to have a huge impact on the performance of the carburetor. Yeah, that's what I wanted to ask you. I mean, is it something where you've seen a carburetor or bike not running properly and then you're like, oh yeah, it's the butterfly O-ring? I mean, that doesn't seem to be one of those telltale signs that uh, is a, uh, a red flag on a troubleshooting process. No, it's not. I, I don't think that it's it's significant enough to really negatively impact the way the bike runs. Yeah. It's just one of those things, you know, you're doing the job and you want to do the best job you can and start with all fresh seals in there so that the carburetor can, can run at its peak performance. Then it's important to do it. But you could, if you wanted to, probably skip that and it, it would, like, work okay. It's not ideal, but it's, like, not the most uh, important uh, thing to, to change this at O-ring at all. I don't think it is. Yeah, as I like to say, dealer's choice uh, on that one. Yes. Yes, and yeah, and you did bring up a good point there at the start of this. Uh, when you're, if you are tackling that job, probably a good idea to get the order the shafts uh, and the screws on the front end, uh, because there's a better chance than not uh, one of them's going to get damaged. When you replace those, do you peen and red Loctite, or one or the other? What's your general? Uh, procedure there. I, I just I just rely on the Loctite. Yeah, because um, when you know peening it, you need to back the shaft, and it it's pretty. It's kind of an acrobat maneuver to, to <laughs> find a way to do that, you know. And if you it don't is. do it properly, you can bend it. So, you know, uh, I think they did it that way because Loctite hadn't really gained acceptance, or uh, or was it even had anyone even really thought of it? I don't know. Deaming was always a thing on any any old bike. You know, you are taking apart bikes where you know they've got like the screws and um, they would would run a you know I'm talking like flat screwdriver head screws and then they would run those in and then peen the 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 screws so they wouldn't back out. You know, that was just like a, a thing that I think we've gone got behind us now. So I think the Loctite is fine. That's all I would use. Yeah, I, I, when I first did that uh, years ago, uh, I was like, okay, yeah, I'm going to peen the screws. And then I had it in the vise or on the workbench, and I started looking at the whole procedure and thought, eh, 
you know what, I think I'm just going to go with Loctite uh, and, and call it good. Because uh, I, I, honestly, I was afraid of, you know, maybe bending the shaft or doing some additional damage, not being real familiar with that uh, process. Right. But definitely always put new screws in no yes. matter what. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and I, I did, at one point in time, many years ago, came across a bike where that screw, one of those screws had found its way loose. Oh, no. And it, complete, it completely trashed the motor. Yeah. It really did. It, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's travel path is not an advantageous one. Let's put it that way. No. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, kind of an oddball in the Bing range, and this came to my attention. A friend of mine just bought an R80-7. And the bank carburetors on there are the flat top variety. Not, they're an oddball because, A, they look strange. I mean, just seeing that flat top without the domed uh, cover for the spring and the, where the diaphragm sits and all that is a little uh, peculiar looking. Um, uh, but also, it was a relatively short run on those. What, what's the deal with the, with the flat top bangs? Yeah, those things. Um, I I think they they were mostly on the early R65s, um, if I remember correctly, and they have a completely different body. If, if you really look at the de- the details, um, I mean they they probably work the same way. But the problem with those was that if you got a torn diaphragm, it wasn't possible at least not to my knowledge, to replace the diaphragm. It had a totally different slide on it. So you you had to, um, I think, even replace the slide to replace the diaphragm. And and it wasn't really, um, it, it was very expensive. Even, even, you know, 30 years ago, it was. And so a lot of times we would get rid of those things and put the, the um, the dome tops on there just just for serviceability going forward, and you know used ones or whatever that was not not a problem. That was I think the the main thing was the serviceability aspect of it. I think functional functionality was essentially the same as the thirty two. And I guess oh, they they, they wouldn't have had that uh, pressure uh, return spring uh, in there either. I don't think so. No. I, I don't think they had that spring. Yeah. yeah, they were just kind of a weird thing. I think they just they just kind of went down a down a, a different path and reversed course on that one. <laughs> Somebody thought it was a good idea, and then they thought otherwise. <clears throat> yeah, uh, maybe that's what happened. Yeah, I think so. Okay, so last thing on carbs here, and again, this is something we could uh, probably talk ad nauseum about, but one thing I've noticed uh, in your videos, um, as far as tuning goes, you are... And this comes from experience. Let's just say that uh, you're a mostly tuned by ear guy, so you are not putting up uh, any kind of gizmos, vacuum lines, uh, looking at Twin Max or Harmonizer or those sort of things um, when you go to balance a carb. So, tell me just a little bit about your overall sort of approach and, and procedure when doing it by ear for folks who want to start uh, developing that technique. It's never a bad idea to have a synchronizer, yeah. so you can, uh, you know, sort of d- really get it perfect. It, you know, you can only really do so much by ear. The, the synchronizer definitely does work well, but there's a lot of times you're you're going to be out and about. You don't have your tools, you know, so it's a good good thing to kind of learn how to do. Yeah, 
And, and so the, the, there's really uh, three adjustments as far as I can think of. And one of them is the, the uh, air mixture screw that's found under, underneath. It's a brass screw. And then the other one is the, um, the throttle stop screw. It's, depending on the model, it's, you know, on the, on the inboard side uh, usually, and it's the one that, that actually sets the rest position of the butterfly. Or the idle screw. For, for, yeah, just for, for the idle. So the idle yeah. is affected by those two, those two adjustments. So you need to have the same opening. Basically, that, that um, butterfly we were talking about moments ago, that, that needs to be opened by just, just cracked open a little bit. So you, you can actually set that sort of on, the, on your um, bench before you put the carburetors back on and, and set that, that gap um, so it's visually identical. Maybe even put a super, super skinny uh, feeler, gauge. feeler gauge in there, in there so that you get them close to being the same. So that way, if, they're, if left and right are, are as close as you can get to being identical, then a quarter turn on the left and a quarter turn on the right will have the same, same effect. Yep. You know what I mean? I do. So, yeah, so basically, you, that, that's, that's step one, to get that, to get that um, the throttle butterfly rest position established. Then you've got the mixture screw, and then you basically go in until it starts to run differently and out until it starts to run differently, but you want to set it at the base, basically the best lean idle. You want to go towards the end and back it out until it, until it starts to fire around again, and, then, and that's where you want to be. Lean best is, is the best way to go um, on, on your on those two things. So then you've got your idle established. And then the other thing is now is the cable adjustment. Yep. And you can set one cable. So it, ha- it has to have a couple of millimeters of free play. And by that, I mean that when you pull the little ferro up out of its seat, um, it should, you should be able to move it up two to three millimeters. And, and that there should be that much play in there. And that's so that when you go lock to lock on the steering, anything will, uh, that, that happens during that time won't pull, you know, pull the throttle cable. So you can set one and then match the other one to it. And the way that this is where the ear thing comes in also is where you can just roll the gas on very lightly. And when, 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 um, one of them is out of sync with the other, it'll, it'll, you can hear it favor the other side. It'll be kind of go bop, 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 yep. bop. Until, until you get the, the adjustment correct, and then they'll go in, in harmony, and it'll just, you know, sound like it's supposed to. And then, and then you lock it down. So that's my technique. Yep, and those are all tried and true. I, I use many of those. Uh, I guess the one thing also with sort of setting the balance and getting it dialed in, some people, if, you, if you're running points, you can still do the shorting technique, uh, where uh, you can short one side um, and make sure the idle speed is ticking over on one side by itself, one cylinder running by itself compared to the other. Uh, that's, not, yep. that's not recommended with electronic ignitions, but you can do it 
by using a screwdriver on a, on a short stick. And I've done that. I haven't toasted an, an ignition yet, but uh, that's, mm-hmm. that's one other uh, technique that I, that I use to get it dialed in. Uh, I also, when you're talking about the air-fuel mixture and you say you're wanting to sort of set it and find the best run speed on the lean side of the setting... When I've done that in the past, sometimes I'll, I'll get it dialed in like that, and the idle and everything will be fine. But <clears throat> if the bike's, A, not warm, or I'm a little too lean, I'll, I have a big hill in my property. So one thing I do when I'm testing is I'll go down the hill in first or second gear, and I can tell if I'm still a little bit lean, I'll get some popping or backfiring. Uh, and then I'll know in that case to richen it up just a tad. So is that usually yeah. the case on a bang? A backfire generally means if you hear a pop under deceleration or something like that, that you are a little bit lean in the mixture. Yeah, that, that, that's oftentimes what, what it will mean. And, and as, assuming you've got stock exhaust, because to, they change, if you've got different exhaust, too, that can cause backfiring that's completely unrelated to carburation. But um, if, but yeah, that's that, that's a good observation. And you, and like you said, you know, you definitely want to set your carburetors at full operating temperature. Mm-hmm. That's definitely something you want to do. Yeah, 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 exactly. Because you know, you'll get them set. Uh, I'll always wait till after I go at least a ten or fifteen minute ride or something like that, and then I'll do that downhill test uh, to see where I am. That's kind of my telltale uh, on on the mixture. All right, William. Well, look, uh, that was a great talk on carburetors. We'll look forward to visiting with you next time. Okay, that sounds great. Thanks, Darren. As always, a great visit with William Plam. He'll be back again in a few weeks, and we'll be discussing 247 transmissions. Now, back to our conversation with Mark Morrissey. Uh, and when I went to register the business name for this business, they wouldn't let me have MN because of M&Ms. You know, the M&M. Oh, candy. right. So they, they wouldn't allow me to register 2M and a little S, BMW Boxer with it, because of its, it could be misconstrued as being part of the candy thing. <laughs> so I just simply put a third M in it and became M&M's BMW Boxer with it. Got it. Got it. And that's how, that's how, it, how it went. Excellent. Um, and... So how did that start? Well, when we had the Brisbane Airheads, I had two big tyre services, Bridgestone Tyre Mechanical Services, and uh, operated them. And I had a little overflow shed about a kilometre away where we used to store um, excess stock tyres and stuff like that. It was only about 80 or 90 square metres. And when I started learning with Michael, we were riding with the BMW groups, and I used to fix people's pipes on the side of the road. I've always been able to tune carburetors really well by ear. Uh, even when I was 18, we had friends with a, a 911S Porsche, which had two triple choke Webers on it. And I used to be able to tune that car by listening to it. And and uh, it's just a, just a thing. It's just a pitch thing, you know. And and uh, so I, I started doing little repairs to people's bikes to help them out and stuff. Because a lot of the guys out here, those bikes then, they were old and kind of dishevelled and they were things that people bought for a few pence off the internet so they could ride to work cheaply and... Some of them were in horrendous condition, and I used to take them there and shed. And from that, it grew. We, we we had the group, and then I used to hold service days there on a Saturday afternoon. We'd, we'd have a service day, we'd have a barbecue and a few beers, and people would turn up and I'd show them how to change brake pads and yep. 
change the rules and show them why the O-ring had to be in the filter and all that kind of stuff, you know. Yeah. And uh, it grew. We used to have a night once a month. We'd have we'd show some BMW-related movies and we'd have a barbecue and they'd bring their wives and girlfriends. It's not a bikey group by any stretch, but a bike interest group. Yeah. Um, and and uh, when I had the tyre shops still, I probably had about 18 or 20 customers whose bikes I used to... By then, I was doing gearboxes and engines and stuff in my own bikes, and I, I just expanded it a bit. And then um, the council, business of the council, ex- resumed both of my shops to put a tunnel, an underground transport tunnel through. Um, and I was paid well for it, and I was bored, and I took up some consultancy work for the local government out on the Darling Downs because I've also got a reasonably good knowledge of heritage-listed buildings in, in this part of the world. Um, and I was helping them out with some heritage stuff out there. And um, when I came home, I, I, I had decided that my I was then 60, what was that, six years ago, I was 62, and I decided that I'd, I'd, um, I had a nice little business running there when I came home on holidays and stuff, just servicing and repairing people's bikes. It wasn't making me any real money, but it was something I liked doing, and I loved the people. The people who ride those kinds of bikes are, by and large, I mean... You'll get a mongrel anyway, but but most of the people that I know in the fraternity of BMW riders that are here in Brisbane are just absolute gentlemen to the core. They're lovely, lovely people. And I'm sitting at a big old table here in front of my workshop at the moment, and we get all the old guys turn up and they come down. They're like Italians playing dominoes. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. They come and sit around the table and they tell tall stories and they read old magazines and get coffee, and I, and I just work away around them and talk to them and stuff. And, doesn't happen all the time, just randomly. But it's a lovely, a lovely feeling and a lovely atmosphere to have to be able to provide that kind of thing, you know. And uh, and so, you know, I suppose when I opened this shop, when I came home from the, the con, I went for six weeks. I must tell you that story properly. I, I went for six weeks as a consultant to the Formal Regional Council, and I wound up being there for six years. And I, I came home and I'd had enough and I said to my wife, I'm going to open up my little green business now. I'm going to open up a BMW service centre. And just airheads, nothing else. And I started it up on the internet, registered the business name in July 2016. And I was in my little 80 metre shed. The, the tyre shops were gone. So the 80 metres was a giant, empty 80 metre butter box. And um, I had two bike horses in there and I was just fixing people's bikes and rebuilding things. And in the process of doing that in that shop, I rebuilt a world traveller, a German girl named Cindy Gottwald. Um, if anybody's listening to this broadcast and you want, a, you want a, an hour of just the most amazing photographs and the most amazing person I've ever met, she's somewhere in her 30s and she's she's a German uh, father and a mum's Korean. And she rode a GS the same as mine right around the world on her own. Uh, and I, I rebuilt it in that shed for her when it cracked up out here. Who, and who was that again? Her name is Sonia, like the German word for Sonia, Gottwald, G-O-T-T-W-A-L-D. But if you look up on the internet, if you look up Okimoto Travels, O-K-I-M-O-T-O Travels, she's currently riding an electric bike in Mozambique or someplace. Oh, wow. She's just the most amazing person I've ever met. And I met her in that little shed I fixed the bike for, and we got some sponsorship to repair heavy things and... Anyway, one day a guy, the landlord turned up after 18 years and said, you've got to leave this, I'm going to knock it down and build new sheds. And uh, 
I was going to fold the business and travel at that stage. That was about 2018. And um, by then I had quite a good clientele and I, and I was busy all the time, but I could close the doors and go for a ride or whatever I wanted to do. And this space that I'm in now, which is two buildings in a complex, one of them is about um, 160 square metres and the other is 280 square metres, uh, became available uh, completely out of the blue. A fellow turned up and said, do you realise these two buildings are in Edmondson Street for, for rent? And I said, no. So I went and saw them. I met the landlord. We clicked immediately. He rented me the shed. And I got in here with all of the stuff I had in my 80 metre shed, opened the door, and it was like a postage stamp in the middle of a pudding bowl. You know? <laughs> Yeah, that's a great analogy. You know, I've seen uh, I've I've seen some of the photos of uh, of your shop and uh, from you know from the size and uh, layout and the way you've got it set up is very impressive. Well, I, I said to myself then, at, at as I said, sixty two or whatever I was, sixty or sixty eight now, and I said, <clears throat> I have got to do something to drive some business in here, or I'm going to not be able to pay the rent, and and uh, not I mean and. The funny thing about this shed, Brisbane is the capital of Queensland, right? So it's a big city. It's got a population of about 3 million people, big for Australia, you know, I'm saying. You know, we've, we've got a huge country with 25 million people in it, so there's still a fair bit of space between us, really. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, uh, I'm, I'm one kilometre from the CBD, the, the general post office in the centre of Brisbane. I'm at the opposite side of the park from the biggest regional hospital in Queensland. And I'm looking at trees and parrots and birds and things sitting there. And it, it's surreal to be sitting here in this position in a place that is just as beautiful as it is. Uh, and I started on Facebook and I, I made a web page and I did all that. And the BMW Club of Queensland immediately just began to support me because all those guys have got new bikes. They've also got old bikes. And now there aren't very many people left that can fix the old ones. And I'm happy to help those guys out. You know, it's it's not all about money. Yeah. Um, for me, it's about fellowship and joy and, and the joy of doing things and being useful. And and, uh, and and that's one of the reasons that sometimes I make a nuisance of myself on various sites, even in the States, trying to help people out. Because I saw what happened. Like Robert, Robert Fleischer, I believe, is still alive. Yes, so, but, yes. But I haven't I don't, I don't see him too much these days on the net, and he must be well into his late 80s by now. And, of course, Ike's been gone for a lot of years. And 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 other guys that I met, you know, I've done a lot of business with people there, and they took, like, Snowbum made an effort to get his information out there and, and into into some form where people could use that, that priceless information that he accumulated over a life. And I... Mine's not priceless. Mine, mine's practical stuff. There's a guy that's opened up a new site in the States that I see. He's only a young fellow and more powerful. Um, and he's got a name, something like M's Boxer Works. It's not M's Boxer Works, it's an, it's, but it's, he does movies and all those kinds of things. And, and, and I, I congratulate him on doing that. And I hope that people do support him. And I hope that the people take who know, take him under their wing and teach him the finer points of the airheads because in Brisbane at the moment, there is nobody, no no licensed uh, BMW agent will handle a bike more than 10 years old. Yeah, yeah, and that's, yeah, that's not, yeah. 
uh, into a megalopolis, all I'd have to do would be hire half a dozen mechanics and put a bunch of horses in the front shed and start servicing K-bikes and oil heads, and I'd be busy till the day I die. But I really like pottering around, fiddling my, <laughs> my old engine bikes. I like I like the, the tactile nature. I like the I like to put on some credence or you know some Mark Knopfler or something and just have it away in the background and yeah. just work away. You know, That's great. That guy so quick. So That's great. Now who? Let, let me go back there. You mentioned uh, somebody you have noticed here in the. States uh, that's done some videos uh, and things. A younger fellow who who are you referring to there? I find him on Facebook really quickly if you put in BMW service. He's a young fellow. He's only starting up. He's you know he he's he's taken the young person's go. I'm going to punch through and make no nonsense. And sometimes I I, I look at his movies and I and I've never criticised anybody and. Sometimes the way he says things, I think he's referring to me because the way I make a movie is without a script, I pick up the phone, turn it on, start talking. <laughs> right. And, and I've got like 150 or 60 movies out there. Some of them are a little bit rough around the edges and the occasional one I don't have a script, so I call something that's a mirror that should be a wheel or whatever. Right, right. But the whole idea of it is to try and get the concept across to people of the particular thing I'm talking about, like, for example, do not sandblast an engine while the engine is in one piece, for example. Or don't do this because you'll cause yourself trouble or whatever it might be. And and uh, all I'm trying to do is disseminate the things that I've learned the hard way. And, and, uh, and, and you know, my customers will often be talking to me about something on their bike. I'm sorry I wouldn't do that if I was, if I was here. And they asked me why, and I said, just ask me how I know. Mate. <laughs> everything in my life is a test bed. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I test everything on my own bikes, and if it breaks, it's my problem. You know, like, wow. Yeah, that's a great app. So I recommend something to somebody. I sort of say, well, I've tested this over 200,000 kilometers and haven't killed me yet. And, and I, I suggest that you do that. Wow. You know, that's just me. I mean, yeah, I I have to tell you, Mark, I really appreciate your your outlook there and your willingness to to help folks and, and the approach you take. Uh, that's that's refreshing. Uh, we don't always uh, see that uh, in the motorcycle world. Uh, so kudos to yeah. you, kudos to you for that. Well, we're going to have to leave it there for this episode. Join us next time when we visit in-depth with Mark about the development of the Wedgetail Ignition System. The Airheads 247 podcast is distributed and produced by From Off Productions. Our producer engineer is Jeff Glover. I'm Darren Dorton. Look forward to catching up with you next time. Hey.